The Secrets of Star Wars is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hello there. Obi-Wan Kenobi here, also known as James Arnold Taylor, the voice of Obi-Wan. Jedi Master Plo Koon. And many other characters in the world of Star Wars. You're listening to... Shh, don't tell. It's the Secrets of Star Wars. May the Force be with you. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Wars, episode 153. Hello there. It's a power that Jedi have that lets them control people and make things float. Impressive. Every word in that sense was wrong. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I find your lack of faith disturbing. It's against my programming to impersonate a dead. That's not how the Force works. Force is with me, and I am with the Force, and I fear nothing. Remember, the Force will be with you, always. Hi, I'm Robert King, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Wars, where we talk about everything connected to that galaxy far, far away. From movies, to books, to TV shows, and more, we're looking at the deeper themes and meanings found in Star Wars. Today we're discussing The Mandalorian, Chapter 19, The Convert. Joining me today on the panel are Catherine Laffrey. Hello. And Jason Yuji. Thanks for having me. And John Coral. Hello. It's good to have you all here. Uh, once again, this was an episode that kind of surprised me at almost every turn. It starts off where the last episode left off with Din and Bo-Katan at the steps of the living waters under the mines of Mandalore. Din, who nearly drowned, wakes up and collects a vial of the water. Bo-Katan asks if he saw anything down there, but he didn't, and she doesn't mention seeing the mythosaur herself. Then they head back to Bo-Katan's castle on Kalevala, just to head their separate ways, but they're attacked en route by some TIE interceptors, and while they're fighting the fighters, a set of bombers come and destroy Bo-Katan's castle. Then more ties come to finish them off, and so Din and Bo-Katan, they just punch it out of there. At that point, we cut to Coruscant, where we find Dr. Pershing. Re remember Dr. Pershing? He was the geneticist who was running the experiments on Grogu. So now he's on Coruscant, giving public testimony that he's changed his ways and just wants to help the New Republic. He lives in an amnesty village, along with other reformed Imperials, including an officer from Moff Gideon's ship, now identified as G-68, but we later learn her name is Alia Kane. She convinces Pershing that continuing his research will actually help the New Republic, even though the New Republic told him, nope, don't do it. So she says maybe they could go steal some equipment from a decommissioned Star Destroyer, and he can continue his experiments on the sly. After they do this, with a lot of excitement on the way, um, they, they get past every obstacle and, and escape every, every uh, trap until the end when they're caught and Kane reveals that she's been setting him up all along. So Pershing is sent back to reintegration 
where he is subjected to a mind flare. I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, a 602 mitigator, which at low voltages can soothe selected traumatic memories. Then everyone leaves Kane alone with Pershing and she cranks that 602 mitigator up to 11. After all that, we switch back to Din and Bo-Katan as they arrive at the covert of the watch that raised Din. Din brings proof that he is bathed, bathed in the living waters and has been redeemed. And the armorer declares that Bo-Katan has been redeemed as well and welcomes her as one of them. So now Din and Bo-Katan are home in a way. I think that sums up this episode. Did I miss anything important? I, th I think it, you got it. It's a, it, there's a lot going on <laughs> in this episode. Um, and, and part of what makes it complex is, is that we don't get a lot of episodes that are structured like this, you know, with kind of a part one that uh, was focused on the Mandalorian that we expected. And then most of the episode, I, I calculated it out 36 minutes of this episode were on the Pershing story uh, without a break, without intercutting back and forth. And then it, it got back to um, Din Djarin at the end. And uh, yeah, what did you think about that choice to split up the story that way? Uh, what worked for you and what didn't? It threw me off a little at first because it felt like we were going to get like the continuation of everything that happened with Bo and Din. And then all mm -hmm. of a sudden it's like, they take off and I'm like, why are we at Coruscant? <laughs> just like, I was like, wait, what's going on? <laughs> it just was like such a jarring change that it really did catch my attention. But at the same time, it just, it made the whole rest of the episode feel unsettled, which I think might've been the reason why they did it that way. Oh, that's, that's an interesting I was just thought. waiting for the other shoe to drop the whole time. So there wasn't a point where you kind of settled in and said, oh, okay, this is what we're doing now. No, no. I always was like, what's going to happen? It just felt like something bad was going to happen the whole time. <laughs> uh, I was, I wonder if it was like a, a time lapse, like maybe the, where the covert is, I don't know. Did they, do they ever say what planet they're on? The covert? I don't think so. Uh, but it, it seems like maybe, maybe they did that as, Cause you know, we were on Coruscant for a couple days, I think at least cause that, you know, they set up all the different, okay, I'll meet you tomorrow night and we'll do, go do this thing. And you see him at work a couple times. So it's gotta be a, you know, three or four days probably. Is it possible that that's how long it took them to jump from, uh, Mandalore to, or Kalevala to wherever they were going at the covert? Maybe, but I, I kind of took it as, as the whole Coruscant took place over a matter of weeks or even months. Um, oh. Um, I mean, Pershing had two different interviews with that sort of rehabilitation robot. And I, you know, I have trouble getting like two appointments with my therapist in a month. <laughs> so like, I'm I'm thinking, you know, those wouldn't be like, on the same day or, you know, even on two sec consecutive days, I thought there would be like a week between them at least. Well, the, maybe yeah, it wouldn't take 
that long for them to go anywhere over the through the galaxy or they would we would never see anything happen (laughs) (laughs) well when i was watching it i saw you know the first part was so exciting and then it felt like we moved into andor and cyril working in his desk for a while yeah and stuff and then it was (laughs) and it really slowed down the pace but like Catherine was saying i i was also pretty unsettled because every time you know it's like he opens the door and it's like oh where's that person you know it's like and then and then you're thinking, are they really friends? You know, it was like the whole time, you know, um, I just, that was, that was the thing. It was like, as I was going through it, it was, it was like a tension there that it's like, is, are they really a team or is, I didn't know if she was setting them up or what, but it was just like, you just felt like there was some, the fact that we we're fa- focusing on the guy the whole time and, you know, you could see his, how he changed over time. It was, um, you were thinking, okay, something's going to happen to him, whether it was what what did happen in the show or, you know, is he going to get caught up with the Empire again, you know, doing the stuff or is he, you know, whatever. But that was so <laughs> it was a, it was pretty jarring where, you know, things were exciting. Then it was dull. Then it built up to exciting. And then <laughs> and then um, and then you're back to the covert, you know. And so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. My my first reaction because it, um, what Din and Bo-Katan are running away from the the Tie Fighters, the Tie Interceptors, and she says, "Where are you taking me?" And he says, "Some you know, someplace that they won't find us." And then it cuts to the title card, and then from there it cuts to Coruscant. And so I was like, "He's taking them to Coruscant." <laughs> Well, you know, <laughs> and it took me a minute to to figure. Oh no, we're somewhere else completely. Um, a different storyline. Yeah. Well, what threw me for a loop too, though, it's like when I before I hit play on it, you know, they'll have that little line on the screen about the the story, and it said something along the lines of, you know, and then on Coruscant, you know, Imperials have a chance for rehabilitation or something like that. But right. then the but then the picture on the screen was out of Bo Katan. You know, so I was like, okay, so are the, that made me think, are they going to Coruscant too? But it was also the idea, though, it's like the storyline did not match the picture they put up with that episode, you know. And it, mm-hmm. So that kind of threw So I knew that I had a feeling they were going to Coruscant because of what the storyline said. But then it was like, why, the, you know, do they need to spend so much time there? It was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, because the the episode really did seem like two separate storylines, like two really distinct storylines. Um, I thought maybe we would take them one at a time and, and, and let's, we're already kind of talking about the Pershing storyline. So let's, let's stick with that. Um, I, I thought it was fascinating how they set up Pershing as this, uh, very sympathetic character. Like, um, you know, they, they, they bring you into his point of view and they kind of show what he's struggling with a lot. Um, did, did that work for you? Um, do do you, do you kind of, do you buy his, his line that he always had good intentions and he just wanted to help people. Um, and now he wants to do that helping the new Republic. And you, you think he's really reformed? No, I didn't buy it. No? <laughs> 
No, he's just his mannerisms, his nervousness, the way he was talking, his grabbing his ear, remembering having mm-hmm. the shot go past his face there. Yeah, he just, he seemed, I get, he seemed unsettled enough that I was like, anytime I saw him, felt totally unsettled, going, what is going on here? This isn't right. You know, he seemed like total fish out of water. Every time they showed him going through the city, he looked like, oh my gosh, he'd never seen anything like this. And, mm-hmm. you know, deer in headlights half the time. It just, you know, he seemed so nervous about everything. And then when he was thrown off seeing, um, was it Aaliyah? Aaliyah? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that just, you know, you could see him just like shaking to the core. What is she doing here? And, you know, I don't know. I didn't buy his story about his mother either. As much as oh. he tried to pull it off um, because of what he said in the little hollow they had of him in season two about wanting more samples of Grogu and. Oh, yeah, this one failed. We'll have to, you know, we might lose another subject if we try this again, but I need more blood. I mean, he just didn't seem like it was a big deal if whoever he was experimenting on died. So mm-hmm. he didn't, I don't know. I just didn't see the, he, he seemed like science is all he wanted and there wasn't much moral founding behind it. Well, he did say in his uh, speech, it was something to the effect of, like, pursuing knowledge is the most noble thing a person can do, or something like that. Um, That that was, uh, I thought that was a pretty, I I think I believed him on that line, at least. Um, And, uh, yeah, I think my experience was that I did kind of by that his his intentions were good and but he he uh yeah he doesn't know where to uh where to land in terms of loyalties speaking of his speech at the at the what is it the ballroom or whatever that thing is where and if if did you guys notice that's the same place where uh palpatine had his talk with uh, Anakin in Revenge of the Sith. It, I did the, not. It's the same, what they called it, the, the opera house or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's the same place. Okay. Um, so I thought that was really interesting, a callback to Revenge of the Sith and, you know, how Anakin is drawn to the dark side, you know, through <clears throat> subtly. And so I thought that was an interesting tie. But what was the purpose of that speech? if they weren't going to let him continue that, that mission, why, why have him get in front of all of those people and tell him all this, tell them all the stuff that he was working on just to say, well, you can't do that no more. That doesn't seem logical to me. There, there's mm-hmm. gotta be a reason that they did that. And it didn't seem like he told them everything, you know, it's like, he kind of like, grazed on it like oh we're bringing these two gene sequences together from two different sources but he didn't say that he was like you know well we're trying to steal midichlorian <laughs> from this one super powerful <laughs> small little being so that we can resuscitate someone <laughs> well, see, and that's what i was kind of wondering a little bit because when he was talking about the pursuit of knowledge and stuff 
it ended somewhere by saying, you know, how it got twisted and stuff. But he said, by a desperate individual who wanted to use cloning to tech or to um, secure more power for himself. And I was mm-hmm. wondering, is that Moff Gideon who wanted to secure that power, or was he doing it knowing that it was maybe for Palpatine? You know, it was kind of, and that's kind of, <laughs> and the, then the fact that he said they were using two people, you know, versus just the initial to build strength into it. I was thinking maybe more Palpatine, you know, because that's why you'd want the Metaclorians from someone like Grogu. Or, well, and you know, it could be, you know, Moff Gideon's delusion that if he helps Palpatine, that Palpatine's going to, you know, loft him to this great high power or whatever. But we all know what Palpatine's going to do. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Moff Gideon probably is like, oh, he's going to take care of me. Did anyone else get Hunger Game vibes off of that? Huh. It felt like, well, I just rewatched what, it what too part with of the my Hunger daughter. Games? Um, where they have the contestants on stage and talking about themselves to try to get supporters. And that's all I kept feeling. And then, of course, he walks out into the hallway and you get all the fakeness from all the people around him. And I was like, oh, my gosh, is this Capital District of Hunger Games? I was like, really? This is supposed to be the New Republic. (laughs) I did get a little bit of that with those people talking to him. You know, they all just seem so fake and... You know, man, ah, they creep me out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely, definitely the creepiness of of, like the, the, the one guy who was like, oh, I almost got recruited once. Can you imagine me? And it's like, oh, dear, that was the Empire. That's totally different. It's like, oh, I never pay attention to any of that stuff. (laughs) As long as he gets to live his, you know fat, dumb, happy life, you know, because he's probably the son of a senator, son of a senator, son, you know, that that's the part that um, I, I can definitely see the Hunger Games vibes there. But but uh, that also gave me sort of Andor vibes myself. Yeah, because my um, Mathis husband and daughter and stuff yeah. rock and, and all that crap. A lot of that crowd are caught up in the, the not, the, you know, the the superficial side of things. Yeah. And yeah. Not, the, not the deeper moral reason why you're doing things or why yeah. you're in those positions. It's funny because this was yet again another break for me from um, the Star Wars storyline that I fell in love with. So it's like it's hard for me to like let go of what's now Legends because, I mean, for me, back in the early 90s, I was newly married. I was becoming a mom, and I'm reading Timothy Zahn's Heir to the Empire, where my favorite couple is just getting ready to have their first kids. You know, you got Han and Leia, and it was just like, it was fun and relatable for me, and especially for me and my husband, because we always use the line, I know. (laughs) That's Uh, Han. So it was like, for me, it's like, okay, this was a great storyline, strong couples, we're building a new republic, everything is working toward a greater good. And now all of a sudden, everything is just dismal. And I'm like, why is it like that now? What's different? And then I stopped to think about the timeline in reality for us. Timothy Zahn wrote that right after the Gulf War happened. We needed new Mm. hope. We needed something good to look forward to. It felt like there was a revival of this is what we stand for. 
this is what we could do with a good, you know, work together kind of feel in life and politics and business kind of thing. And then now everything just feels cynical. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just, it was hard for me to see the new Republic the way they displayed it. And all I kept thinking was, this is not Leia and Mon Mothma's new Republic. Yeah. I mean, they weren't mentioned at all. And, and this would be the time period where they would be very active, right? Um, you would think anyway. Um, the only thing they mentioned from that was the, uh, the hollow zoo of extinct animals or whatever it was. Oh, <laughs> that was, that was in one of the sets of books. And I just laughed when I heard it. My husband's like, what's so funny? I go, that's one of my favorite scenes. That's where Han and Leia's twins totally ditched C-3PO and Chewie and got lost in the lower regions of Coruscant. <laughs> and I'm just like, that was such a funny moment. And I'll hear I'm like, oh, and I was just kind of a afterthought and everything I loved is legends. <laughs> well, could they be showing the decline of the New Republic this soon to, to set up how they got to the First Order? This is literally 20 years before the sequel movies. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. and it's only five years after the fall of the emperor. <laughs> mm -hmm. So. But it could have, five you know, could have started years. going downhill that soon. Possibly. Maybe not where, you know, where Mon Mothma and Leia are doing their thing, but because I don't think, Coruscant was the seat of the New Republic, was it? Originally, yes, it was. It was, and Leia was doing all kinds of um, refugee centers. She set up a whole Alderaan refugee center, and they had are, purposely brought back talking, plants and things. <laughs> are you talking about uh, from Legends, or or because yeah, I know there Legends. have been some so new. Books that talk about the the Leia specifically in the early days of the New Republic, but I have to admit I haven't read them. Um, yeah. Have any of you guys? The oh. only new canon books I've read are the the Thrawn series set, set okay. up Rebels. Um, yeah. So, dang, I think we should have done our homework more. Um, <laughs> But who, I mean, I, who knew that this was going to be like, yeah, such a Coruscant centric yeah. show. Um, I I agree, though. It, it struck me as as odd and, and um, to, to have like this this undermining of like the the moral idealism of the New Republic so quickly. Um, and I mean, like. In in the outer room, we we see how you know the New Republic is is dealing with um, you know the the planets and you know they've got marshals in some places and and they're you know they they've got kind of a light touch here and there, but here at the core at at you know Coruscant was the the center of the old Republic center of the Empire. It makes sense that the the New Republic would at least start with its center there. And yet the idealism is, it, it seems just as corrupt as either the old Republic was or the empires shown to be in Andor. And um, I don't know. What do, you, what do you think about that? Are, are, are they just trying to say they're, 
I wonder if it are was they more... undermining the the whole idea of that that there is a good idealism to be found anywhere. I, I just I think I saw more as just the difficulty of how to build a new republic. In a sense, you know, it's like you've already you know you had the empire, you win the war. But, you know, the guy's talking about, well, we got to decommission the imperial vessels. We got to decommission the alliance stuff. And, you know, DP, or, <laughs> right now, Dr. Pershing is, uh, you know, saying, hey, this is really good equipment and stuff. Mm-hmm. Why are we getting rid of it? And it's like, look, it's all imperial. We just want to, it's kind of like we want to turn our back from the imperial side and move on. But there's so much so much work that goes into it it's not just like you flip you know snap your fingers and all of a sudden hey <laughs> we got this whole new government everything's hunky dory and you know we're going perfect it's i think and then i think by showing you know those you know how many people are in that amnesty program because that was something they mm-hmm. mentioned that maybe there is something where you know the the former imperials are taking advantage of this transition and this maybe is the long run how we're going to see how the First Order does come about. You know, it's like, okay, they do take advantage of these simple questions of the droids and say, yeah, if I just answer yes, no, whatever, you know, each time, then I just pass. And they don't really care if, you know, what I'm doing. And then we can work and, you know, <laughs> to undermine things and stuff. I don't know. I just think, I mean, I do think, you know, a lot of the... <laughs> you know, side of that we see with Coruscant is superficial, but I'm just wondering if they're trying to show us the difficulty of, you know, trying to transition and then, like I said, how the new order would come, or the first order would come about, to, you know, over time, because, you know, when we first saw the, you know, the the Force Awakens, it's like, how could the first order have so much going out there? <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, we just get rid of all this, you know, you know, so. Yeah. I don't know. That was kind of my thought on it. What What do you think specifically of their reintegration and amnesty program? I mean, like, like the idea that they're basically using a, a, the same mind flayer technology. <laughs> um, and I'm like, this is, this is pretty sketchy. Um, just, just morally speaking. And, and yet I like the, the, uh, calamari doctor who is there. Um, he seemed like maybe he was brainwashed, but maybe he really believed that it was a good treatment. And the other officer who was in the control bo- control booth, he, you know, you don't know much about him, but he, didn't seem like a mustache twirly villain to me. He seemed like he really believed this was doing something good. And then Elia uh, Kane at the end, she's the one after everyone else has left her alone. She's the one who cranks it up to dangerous levels, which leads me to think that that's not, that's not normal for this reintegration program. There is so much in the reintegration program that just seemed really odd. I mean, why would, first of all, why would they be giving them numbers only? It made no sense to me whatsoever. And then the fact that the people in the program were only going by their numbers. So it's either self, 
you know, shaming or embarrassment at who they were. But then I started looking back at um, rebels and there were times where people flipped from the empire to the rebels. No problem. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Once you get going in it, it's like, okay, we can do this. And um, so this just seems strange to me. Like, why is this weird protocol in place now? I know it just didn't, it just doesn't click with there's like such a change from what we saw in the rebel Alliance in four, five and six, and then the show rebels mm-hmm. to all of a sudden being, you know, so super distrusting that you get a number. I don't know. Well, I see a huge parallel to what's happening concurrently in the bad batch right now. You know, mm-hmm. the bad batch, the clones are, you can't even call them secondhand citizens. They're not citizens. Right. You know, they, they don't even, they're the one, a couple episodes ago, he was, you referred to him as used equipment. Mm-hmm. So it almost seems like the new Republic is treating the stormtroopers maybe half a step better than that. You know, saying, you know, you can incorporate into the new Republic and we can put you to work and do all these things for us, but we're still not going to give you a name. We're, you know, you were a stormtrooper TK 142 before now you're G 68 or, or whatever your number is. Right. It's very dehumanizing, I think. Yeah. And I think that's that's what seems so out of character. Yeah. The rebellion was all about trying to fix the, what the empire was doing. And now they're doing exactly the same thing. Yeah. Almost explicitly the same thing as, as you were saying, you know, replacing names with numbers and, and, and like just treating people like equipment, like cogs in a machine. So, so I wonder if like, if part of the goal is to say, yeah, there really isn't a difference between Republic empire rebellion any of these things that they all kind of suffer from the same dehumanization. Yeah. That's what the creepy guy at the ballroom was saying was empire rebellion, new Republic. It's all the same. Yeah. 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 Which, yeah, it kind of ties in a little bit to, um, Pershing's obsession with science, science. I've got to fix everything with science when Mm -hmm. there's, and in this too, there's, there's no force. There's no something beyond themselves. So you get the dehumanizing relativism of, oh, whatever happens, happens. And I'll do it my way and you do it your way. And however it works out, it works out. It's just as chaos. And I just felt like it was just a justification for, you know, all organized society is like Andor. You know, it's just yeah dehumanizing and drudging. And, you know, we've lost that we can actually like live for something beyond ourselves. That idea that we're made for community, that we're made to be in relationship with other people. Yeah. And even Dr. Pershing, as you said that, as I was looking here, uh, you know, when they're walking, you know, or going to 
with their was it fizzle sticks or whatever they were called fizz or something um, photon fizzes yeah, or photon something yeah, fizzes. yeah you know yeah. one of the things he which said, are awesome i mean i want one yeah. don't you <laughs> yeah absolutely um yeah the thing the thing that was interesting was is they're walking around and they're like three trillion or whatever it was it one trillion or three trillion people and he says all these people working together to make something better yeah. makes me feel rather insignificant and then mm-hmm. elias you know actually makes her feel special knowing everything i had to overcome to get back here you know but the thing that you know as you're saying this it's like maybe because he's just one of a trillion people or whatever and they're all working together but maybe he feels insignificant because even if you know is it because he's not working together with people or he wants to work on his own to feel the significance of you know (laughs) i did this i figured this out versus let me Mm -hmm. work with a team and and figure it out, you know, like every, you know, work together. Or is he feeling, and that made him feel insignificant because he's not being called out by his um, being special as a doctor who knows this technology and stuff. Or Like know, he wants that. to touch the mountaintop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's, yeah, you make a really good point there. Neither of them, you know, they talk about three trillion or one trillion. I forget what it was either. Um, but, you know, the trillion people working together to build something better. And then both of them talk about how they feel not connected. You know, I feel insignificant, like I'm not actually a part of of a bigger purpose. And she feels um, special because she was able to scrape her own way back there to achieve something on her own not necessarily to participate with whatever you know the making things better whatever that may be um and yeah that that sense of being a part of you know i i may be one individual in in a very large galaxy but I have something, I am a part of something bigger and my contribution is significant, even if it is small. Um, and that, that's just completely missing from either of their point of view. They need a little St. Therese in a little way. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I noticed something in that, in their, um, when they're on Coruscant and they're walking through the, that plaza. Yeah. Um, if you notice she, when she's talking about the biscuits back at their little picnic table, she mentions how she likes the red ones. Mm-hmm. And then if you notice when they're eating their glowy ice cream, she's eating a red one. Mm-hmm. And for those listeners that have never seen six Sense, spoiler alert, but it's been 24 years. <laughs> um, every time there was a clue to somebody being uh, something dealing with how the end of that movie was going to turn out. It was red. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course we know the Sith use have red lightsabers and, and stuff like that. But then also I saw foreshadowing in what she did to him when she tells him to go touch the, the mountain. She knows he's going to get in trouble you know, minor trouble, but she's basically mm-hmm. showing her hand. This is what I'm doing to you, you know? And then later in the episode, she does it 
on a much grander scale to where he's now yeah. in big, big trouble, but she's already showed him her hand. I thought that was really interesting. Of course I had to, I had to watch it again to see that, you know, I don't, I didn't pick up on that first, but I did later. It's um, yeah, I agree. It's, it gives a sense that she really is a consistent kind of character. She's a, she's always, uh, pushing him beyond where he's comfortable going. And, um, she's doing that not for his own good, but for some agenda that she has. And, um, and, and, and I'm not sure what that agenda is. At first I thought she was an agent of the reintegration program that they were like trying to like, like setting, setting Pershing up to fail, but obviously, or obvious to me, at least maybe I'm wrong. Um, you know, the fact that she, she cranked it up to 11 at the end, that, that tells me she's maybe working for somebody else. And well, I'm not sure what's going well, on with that. It, when the second time I watched it, I had a, <laughs> I paid more attention to the conversation the officers had when Pershing goes to meet the, or goes to the amnesty house and they're having drinks and sure. And what was interesting was, and this is, I think she is working for someone because they said, oh, you're on Moff Gideon's ship. I didn't know you were there and blah, blah, blah. And then the guy said, didn't Moff Gideon escape when they were sending him to that war tribunal? And then the next mm -hmm. guy says, no, that was just the cover story. They'd used the mind flare on him and stuff. But mm -hmm. when you look at when you look at what Dr. Pershing did at the end of season two, and I'm thinking the fact that she was related to Moth Gideon and, you know, there's questions, is he out there or not? Whether it's Moth, Gid uh, it's Moth Gideon or someone kind of related to him, it was pure revenge. You know, she set him up and then it's like she was taking revenge on him at the end, you know, by doing what she did. So I'm thinking there's sympathies towards Moff Gideon or something along those lines. And mm. and then by knowing how simple the questions are in there, maybe they were just funneling all these Imperials and they're like, hey, reintegration's easy. All you have to do is ABC and mm -hmm. we can get things moving. <laughs> and then a message comes from outside and says, hey, you know, this guy's there. Take him out, you know, or something. You know, I don't know what happens to him. Does he just have no memory or is, you know, I don't know what the mind flare does in the end exactly. But, you know, at that level. But I'm thinking, you know, because of that conversation that they had, um, that it's something along those lines where. Yeah, she definitely seemed to be working for someone else. I mean, the whole the whole time you feel like, oh, gosh, she's setting him up. You could just see the way she's playing with him. You know, it was like a cat and mouse kind of game. And then uh, I went back and watched other scenes she was in and other seasons. And to see the way she was talking to the um, space dock worker who planted the bug on the razor crest, where she was like, oh, you will be remembered well in like the new order or the new whatever. I was like, okay, she's definitely got bigger connections out there than just Moff Gideon. 
you know, and I, it, to me, it felt like, you know, when she did her little, you know, nurse Cratchit role there from Cuckoo's Nest on uh, poor Doc Pershing, um, that she was covering up um, him because he knows too much. And she probably was afraid that he might tell the truth, that mm. he might let the New Republic know what he was really working on. So who's he working for? Who's she working for? I feel like she's working for uh, the mountain that's working on bringing back uh, the Palpatine. I feel like she's got a direct connection. And that mountain was introduced in in the Thrawn novels. So I really do think we're going to see Thrawn at some point. Well, we saw his favorite toy. <laughs> and <laughs> we saw the Pergil. That, that's his pet project. <laughs> and the Pergil. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's all starting to come together. All of the different shows you think are, are kind of focusing on, on bringing us back to, to uh, Palpatine, huh? It feels like it, like they're trying to integrate it all to make that connection that was missing for a lot of people with the sequels. See the part of me that loves huge epic storytelling loves that idea and the part of me that really enjoyed like the the different parts of the Star Wars universe that we saw in like season 1 of the Mandalorian is like ah uh, are we going to are we going to lose everything to being just one story is is the star wars only going to ever be about one story well we're catholic we're part of his story there really (laughs) is only one story (laughs) fair fair (laughs) so we've been talking about like the the darkness and cynicism and dreariness of this pershing storyline the din and bo katan storyline strikes me as having like a real contrast to that. Um, Like it starts with survival and moves to like an unexpected um, trust and acceptance. You know, it's, it's just growing from, I trust you a little to, I trust you more to, I trust you more to, I trust you completely, you know, welcome. You are one of us. And it's it's almost, I may be getting ahead of ourselves, but it almost strikes me as like the opposite story, like, like a, 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 a complete contrast to what's going on with the Pershing story. There's definitely a visual complete contrast. I mean, especially for, at least I feel that way. I go to cities and I get claustrophobic. I live close enough to Chicago to drive there for a day trip, but I hate being there. Because Mm -hmm. I don't like not being able to see for miles. Get me out in the country. And to me, visually, you go from Coruscant with all this stuff and everything flying and controlled traffic patterns to the wide open spaces that we saw in the Din and uh, Bo-Katan storyline, where it's like you have the big flight sequences, which blew my mind. My husband and I love air shows. He's got his pilot's (laughs) license. So it's just like, yes, best flight sequences since Top Gun. <laughs> That's awesome. There, there was some I, great I totally dog fighting. Thought Top Gun. <laughs> yeah. It's been a while since we've had really good dog fighting in a in a Star Wars show, hasn't it? And huge details on that. I mean, just everything from the winglets on Bo-Katan's ship, watching them flutter yep. in the in the mm-hmm. wind. It's like, oh, that's just like on a real plane when you get yep. the little you know, flaps and then, oh my gosh, the turn. 
come on. <laughs> that was the, just the sickest thing. I'm like, yes. I mean, that's like, talk about like just turn and burn and flip that thing over. And did you <laughs> notice awesome. everything in her, like the what R5 and started floating because she's doing <laughs> yes. that, that zero G drop? Man, that was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Which, considering that there is artificial gravity on board that ship, uh, is like okay, but you know, <laughs> I, I suppose I shouldn't go to Star Wars for my for my physics realism, should I? <laughs> well, I was going to say too, the vertical takeoff of the N one was pretty impressive, <laughs> and the thing, but you know what? And I don't think it was meant to be, but what it actually reminded me of though is when he goes shooting straight up and then stops and turns around. It reminded me of the original Batman movie with Michael Keaton when he's in the Batplane. Oh, yeah. And he introduces, but there is no moon or anything behind him, but it's like that's the first bat signal when he stops right up at the moon and then comes flying down. I Uh I don't know if that was intended, but it was like, I don't know if the the N1 looks like a mythosaur skeleton or something, but it was like, (laughs) you know, but it was just, he shot up and, you know, came flying down. And it's interesting, too, how they both kind of use the... uh, Gravity is, I don't know, is that a Mandalorian thing when they fly to say, here, here's how you use gravity to help you, you know, take out your opponent. But that yeah. that one moment, though, gave me those thoughts back all the way back to the Michael Keaton movie, Batman. <laughs> it made me remember my that. caddying days. I used to caddy for a gentleman who was a World War II flying ace, and he uh-huh. loved telling stories about um, some of their runs. Where they would just get to a spot, flip that thing upside down, and then just nosedive to get right to their target spot, bomb and take off. And <laughs> it was really neat just to know that there's moves out there that even the Mandalorian's picking up from those flying aces. Nice. What What do you think's going on? Like, let's rewind a little bit because we could probably talk about the dogfight all night. Yeah. Um, but. <laughs> But but before that, I, there's some really significant conversation in the in the cave under the mines of Mandalore at the Living Waters. You know when Din wakes up, and Bo Katan wants to know what you know what what you see down there. What what do you think is going on in Bo Katan's head? I mean. Do you want me to get to my little, on the, well, I guess. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, I mean, I started off thinking more about Bo-Katan with this, but then um, with the today's gospel reading, <laughs> I read, you know, I read the uh, my little Ignatian study Bible, and it really tied in well with um, the story of the living waters. Because in the story, you know, of Jesus healing the blind man, it said, first off, why is he blind? And, you know, back then they thought he was a sinner or something like that. So he needed redeeming. And the Pharisees did. And then Jesus says, no, that's not really the case. It's, you know, he he has a much bigger purpose than that. Um, so that God might be manifest in him. But so God or Jesus, you know, as it spits in the dirt puts the mud on his eyes and says, go to the spittle and puts it in. uh, And he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. And then the blind man goes there, washes, and when he comes back, he sees. And what I liked was the note that's in the study Bible here says, 
The Pool of Siloam was a rock-hewn reservoir in the southern district of of ancient Jerusalem. The pool was built by King Hezekiah to serve as a water supply for the city. The editorial comment that Siloam means sent suggests that the pool is a symbol of Jesus, the source of living water, and the one sent by the Father. Its contents are symbolic of the Spirit, one who is the living wa- the living water contents are wait sorry one who is the living water poured out by Christ, and the one who is sent by the Father and the Son. And then it goes more into the anticipation of the administrate. The miracle anticipates the administration of baptism and are washed by water, anointed with oil, and enlightened with grace and truth. But when you think about Din needing to be redeemed, he goes to the mm-hmm. living waters of Mandalore. When <laughs> this blind man needs to be redeemed for his blindness, he goes to the, well, the living water of Jesus Christ. I mean, he sent him to Siloam, but really Jesus is the living water. And then that made me think then about Bo-Katan, whereas the blind man automatically saw, you know, that Jesus was the way, I guess. And then she's, you know, as she's watching Din Djarin go through his process, I think she's beginning to be less blind um, Mm, of, mm -hmm. of that, there is something more to the creed. It's not just, you know, ritual and, you know, myths. There's something more to it. And I think that's why when she's doing the double take at the mythosaur, it's like, wait a second, <laughs> maybe this isn't just stories, you know. And mm-hmm. that's where, I, I mean, she's not at all like the blind or at the point of the blind man, like I completely agree with, you know, um, you know, the children of the watch. But I think it, she's a little more open to the traditional ways now that are the orthodox ways, maybe that they do that, you know, she's witnessed what Din has gone through as well as then what she saw underwater. <laughs> and I think she wants to know if he saw that because, you know, maybe she's thinking, maybe that was just my imagination taken off. And <laughs> maybe, yeah, it's, I mean, that whole idea of, you know, who, who is the one who sees more clearly um, you know, is it, is it the skeptic who questions everything and who, who discounts what can't be proven like Bo-Katan did, or is it the one who has almost a blind faith like Din Djarin? And, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's fascinating to see, I, I mean, it, this whole season has been rife with baptismal imagery, right? Um, and and uh, this just takes it that f- step further. I noticed, now that you're mentioning that, John, I noticed a relation to what our priest was saying in our sermon this morning. He was saying that that the blind man went through stages in his faith as he's coming to realize what's happening he first sees Jesus as a man and then he's being questioned and he calls him a prophet. And then a little bit later, he finally realizes that he's the Messiah. He's the Christ. And now I'm seeing, now that you mentioned this, I didn't, th- none of this clicked until you said that. I'm like, wow, this is awesome that bo going through the same thing. You know, she started, she, I think from the minute they got into 
the mines of Mandalore and they got to the living waters and she was reading that plaque. She was real sarcastic and skeptic, skeptical. And then she saw how Din was treating it, you know, how serious he was treating it. And you could just see it in her face. Maybe there's something to this. And then she goes and rescues him. And she sees the mythosaur, so she's starting to believe a little more. And then, even though she's still wearing her helmet, it was some serious good physical acting when she's in the covert. And she's, to me, it looked like acceptance. You know, for the first time she in a long time, she's being accepted by another group of people. Whereas she's mm-hmm. been, how long has she been sitting in that, that throne room by herself? with all of her people leaving her and now people that look like her because they are wearing the same helmets. I mean, they're all a little bit different, right? But they're all Mandalorian (laughs) helmets. They all air quotes look like her and she's being accepted by them. So I I can see the similarity to the blind man there as well. Yeah. That's interesting. I really like that. Um, One thing I saw in Bo-Katan when she stopped and didn't say to Din what she saw was something we had heard recently from a guest uh, priest giving a talk. And he was talking about discernment and especially in relationship to revelation and private revelation. And he talked about having to discern with understanding. So you need to Make sure that like you get a private revelation. You just don't go blabbing it to everyone. You need to go talk to someone like a priest, a spiritual director with some authority to let you know, did you really see what you saw? Is this what it's supposed to mean? Is this what I'm supposed to do about it? You know, get some direction on it. And then um, it also reminded me of uh, Teresa of Avila talked about when you had a revelation on understanding like that, that. If you just go blabbing it to everyone, it's like you're baking bread and you open the oven too soon and you lose some of that heat. And it's like you got to you got to stop and hold it in and discern. And then having her keep her helmet on, it's like she's, you know, habited, you know, just trying to like mm-hmm. figure this out and see what happens. I have to say one thing, though, when I saw Bo with the cohort, it brought up a high school memory for me. Of uh, hmm. my high school boyfriend at the time thought it was very important for me as a Catholic to go to his Baptist youth group with him, which I thought, OK, my mom's like, yeah, go ahead. Go see what that's all about. When I showed up there, I literally had a group of kids around me, just like Bo-Katan did. They were all so happy that they were saving a Catholic girl. <laughs> <laughs> of course, wow. the, the rest of the evening turned out interesting as every time they told me, well, in the Bible, which you guys don't read, I'm like, I read the Bible every day. Well, mm-hmm. in you know, and I was just like, they started going, wait a minute, you know, some of the stuff we know. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> thank you for, you know, wanting to pray with me and everything. That's very nice. But <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> but how many people aren't and could have been taken away from that so fast? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I. I I think Bo-Katan's journey is going to be really interesting from, from here on. Um, I mean, she was a, she was an interesting character before, but this episode has really kind of given me a, a a deep hook into her story. And I want to see where she's going. Um, 
one one other thing that that popped out at me about what she was doing this episode i think literally half her lines were i witnessed it you know i saw you i bear testimony to this i you know she is she is saying i witnessed didn't jaren bathe in the living waters um and and it's it's almost like she's eager to say it like the tone of her voice and how quickly it comes out you know you know it's like the armor asks you know is this true did you bathe in the living waters and din says it's true i have proof and and she like jumps right in i i witnessed him i was there <laughs> which for, is for a cult that she doesn't believe in at before yeah. that of course i feel like there's so much more about the Mandalorian culture that hasn't been fleshed out yet. It's going to be interesting to see how all this works out compared to like all the other images and storylines we've had with Mandalorians. What I've heard, and I am forgetting where I heard this, so it it may not be entirely accurate. Um, But I heard that uh, John Favreau was basing the Mandalorian culture on like the Jewish diaspora. So that there are lots of, you know, there are Mandalorians everywhere and they've kind of developed different ways of being Mandalorian in, in the same way that, you know, you've got your, you know, you've got your conservative Jews and your Orthodox Jews and your Hasidic Jews and your Reformed Jews. And, and, you know, you've got all these different ways of being Jewish. And, and I think he, he, I heard that he had said somewhere in an interview um, that that was kind of a model for, you know, all the different kinds of Mandalorian culture there are out there, um, which I find really fascinating. But again, it's like, as a Catholic, it's hard not to see all of this very Catholic looking and feeling imagery around um, the way the culture is being portrayed, um, which, yeah, it's, I don't know. Like on, on the one hand, I want to like delve into the, Ooh, Catholic stuff, Catholic, Catholic, Catholic. And on the other hand, I want to like, Ooh, Star Wars, geeky stuff, geeky, geeky, geeky. <laughs> well, I guess as an artist, what I'm missing is the art. I loved the Mandalorian art in the Clone Wars mm. under Bo-Katan's sister. And seeing the interrelationship of signs and symbols, the little um, elongated hexagon around the rectangle on their chest plate uh-huh. is used all throughout all their art and architecture in the Clone Wars. Windows are shaped like that. Floor tiles are like that. And it's like, there's so much meaning of symbolism and shape. And it's like, I miss the art of the Mandalorian. That's why I love Sabine so much. She was, you know, both a warrior like her mother and an artist like Mm -hmm. her dad. Or Mm -hmm. vice versa, I think her dad corrected and said, well, actually, my wife's the artist and I'm the warrior in the politics. But, you know, so it's just kind (laughs) of, I, I miss that part of the culture, the beauty of the culture. Right now, it's like, when are we going to beat these swords and the plowshares and paintbrushes? <laughs> well, I mean, that's also, I mean, a, a sense of he, this is a culture that is 
that has lost its homeland. Um, and what, you know, in, in a sense, I wonder how much we're going to get to see the Mandalorians coming home to Mandalore and whether that will, yeah, have any real world inspiration in, um, you know, the repatriation of, of the Jewish people to Israel or not. Um, Mandalore is not currently inhabited by anybody else. So, so there wouldn't be the displacement of people that there is in, in, you know, that's causing all the, the struggles in present day in the Levant. But, um, there's a lot going on just culturally there. I love the effect of the living water on the, uh, the pool that the uh, armorer uses to cool the metal. Mm -hmm. So it's like, is there a little bit of uh, the Beskar in the water? That would be my guess. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe some kind of like the, the essence of, of the, um, um, mythosaur or a combination of the two. It's funny. You said, I'm sorry. I feel like such a little kid right now. You said essence of the mythosaur. It's like, Okay, I've cleaned out fish tanks. I don't need to know what the essence of them is. This one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was looking for a PG way to say it. Yeah. <laughs> um. Gosh, yes. Um. I like. I'm looking at my notes, and I'm like, there. There's so much else, like lore related, that I, I, I like. Where did those Tie Fighters come from? You know, and there, there were. They talked about like an Imperial warlord. You know. It's like, oh, well, you, you know, you steal one of their <laughs> warships, they, they get a little, um, oh gosh, well, Bo-Katan had some great, yeah, I scugged off a, a lot of ir Imperial warlords, scugged off is a great term. Um, those mud scuffers bobbed my home. <laughs> mud scuffers, I love it. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's like, I'm wondering, okay, are these, imperial warlords just exactly as as said or is there some greater connection to what's going on what do you think the first time i watched the episode the thing that got me with the two storylines was revenge and it made me think of like the empire strikes back okay. when you know after star wars all darth vader wanted was the millennium falcon and to get revenge on han solo and the person you know the person that prevented, you know, uh, that helped destroy the star, um, that helped destroy the Death Star. And because, mm -hmm. you know, I want that ship, you know, through the whole movie, he's trying to find, <laughs> you know, Han Solo and stuff. And in this one, the first thing you see, I mean, after they leave the living waters and they're flying back and they're bombing her castle, that made me think this is revenge on Bo-Katan who took out, was there with Moth Gideon ship. <laughs> just like Dr. Mm -hmm. Pershing helped set him up. And I'm thinking, that's why I was thinking that maybe this is kind of like a way of uh, of sign setting up that either Moff Gideon's coming back or the people that, you know, similar people like him are, you know, flexing their muscle kind of thing to show that they're out there and you know, or, you know, and they mean business and stuff by going after. So that, you know, so that that was kind of the because, like I said, the first thing was a revenge bombing was my thought. And then revenge on Dr. Pershing later on just seemed to tie the two together. And then that made me 
wonder, especially when you see, um, you know, what was it? The the trailers coming into the season and one of those guys for the rebel says, you know, well, no, there's still things out there, you know, that you don't know, or, you know, there's something dangerous, mm-hmm. you know, that still lurks out there. And that's what I'm thinking is this was kind of like a precursor or <laughs> of what maybe we're going to start seeing is, you know, it's going to maybe take a darker turn um, with some of the stuff or that we're going to see more Imperials kind of, <laughs> or the growing of the first order, maybe, I don't know. I'm glad yeah, you brought yeah. that up because, I mean, the first time I saw those tie interceptors, all I saw, I was like, Thrawn! No. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's his pet project. That's his thing. Mm-hmm. And you know what? He wants revenge on the Mandalorians also mm-hmm. because they came to the rescue. Mm-hmm. And so he he would recognize that as well. So, yeah, maybe he did blow it up for that. Well, because the thing, I mean, I I saw, I mean, I did read The Heir to the Empire in those books years ago with Timothy Zahn, but I've never watched um, The Clone Wars, The Rebels and stuff, so I haven't seen how they've integrated Thrawn into the storyline later on. You've got homework. (laughs) I know, I know. Yeah, and a real treat. Right. It is. It's awesome. But that's why I was like, at least, because when they, especially when those, you know, when she's, you know, especially when Elias has been on the on Moff Gideon's ship and then they said oh there's that story that he was escaped or you know they used you know it's like that's why the second time through when they said that I was like oh maybe this is tying it all (laughs) you know a little bit but like you know but it could also be something more like okay maybe that was the cover story but Thrawn's out there you know coming out coming after him now too but I mean it's just a that's what I saw it would not surprise me it would not surprise me and I've I've read this this is not my original theory but um uh, it could be that Gideon was or still is working for Thrawn. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so possibilities all around. And then uh, I just had one question, though. The, oh, yeah. The convert. I was, you know, obviously Bo-Katan's the convert, you know, at least you would think she is. But then I thought, well, these people in the amnesty programs are kind of converting from Imperial to, you know, yep. uh, to New Republic or whatever. So it's like, to me, it seemed like it had a double meaning with this as well. As They've been doing that a lot. Yeah, having titles that refer to or could apply to, mm-hmm. to several characters mm-hmm. or situations. Yeah, yeah. What other what other aspects of the of the show do you think tied these two halves or these two storylines together i mean i already said i i I think they kind of work as like um mirror images or opposites of each other you know one is about looking for belonging and 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 not finding it and the other is about finding belonging where you don't expect it in a way they're both kind of about redemption about you know overcoming past you know what you've done in the past yeah just the way they welcome bo-katan into the group of the watch. Yeah. Especially knowing a lot of them didn't care much for her. Yeah. Yeah. Paz Vizla there. Who are you, Night Owl? <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, he knows who she is. <laughs> he knows exactly who she is. Just give her a little jab there. Because wasn't it one of his kin that uh, she watched get their head chopped off by uh, Darth Maul? Believe so, yeah. 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 Same voice actor, too. Oh, really? Yeah, John Favreau is the voice actor of Pre Vizsla and Paz Vizsla. But in this last episode, they did credit 
the guy that's in the suit with uh as the voice actor this time. But generally it's okay. been up until now it's always been John Favreau. Okay, there was one really good cool. funny in this episode though. I mean the best line was when uh poor Doc Pershing is getting ready to have his uh brain scrambled and oh, I yeah. knew you were gonna bring right this up. The, <laughs> Mark says, It's a trap <laughs> <laughs> And he says it to the Mon Calamari. Oh, that was the best ever. Oh, I maybe it's just me. I hate that kind of thing. It's like <laughs> it's like you are no longer involved in the story. You're just making a meme, and it's like ah, no. Oh, but that's such I a just want to be. I want to be in the inside the story, uh, <laughs> and it just kicks me out. At that point in time, I needed a break. I was getting exhausted from the whole thing. I was like, oh, okay, I needed that. <laughs> All right. Well, any any final thoughts? We've gone a little long on this episode, but there was a lot to talk about, I think. Um, any final thoughts on, on either part of it or on, yeah, on the um, episode as a whole? Oh, one thing I forgot about was... I. It's not my, no, I didn't catch it, but I was watching another YouTube and they pointed out that uh, every time Din is about to be attacked or wherever Grogu's at, Grogu starts mm. babbling. So it's like his force sensitivity is, hey, something's happening, something's happening. And uh, that happened right before the TIE fighter started shooting at him. He's developed a little spidey sense, hasn't yeah. he? And so how cute when he tried to say, this is the way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. We might get some discernible words out of him by the end of the season. Hey, I'm just wondering what new holidays we're going to be introduced to in the next episode. <laughs> every week, yeah. every time there's a, you know, what was it? Uh, Bendu Days, Bunta Eve. And then I don't know what Tongs Day is or whatever that was. And. I, I kind of took that as being like, you know, uh, yeah. Thursdays, uh, am I right? You know, okay. but, but it could be, it could be a, like a significant holiday. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I was just, but it's like every time there seems to be something new that they keep trying to work into these episodes. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, it is, <laughs> it is a big galaxy far, far away. And, uh, they keep, they keep kind of, as much as they, like keep tying things back together. They always try to add something new and that's cool. All right. Well, with that, I think it's time to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create secrets of star Wars. And this week we would like to mention, especially Antonio, a Kathleen D Emily C Ben and Susie S Brian T their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of star Wars and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Uh, be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple podcasts, Google play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or check us out on the SQPN YouTube channel. You can find previous episodes of Secrets of Star Wars, and you can send us feedback at sqpn.com slash Star Wars or via email 
at starwars at sqpn.com. You can also follow StarQuest on social media. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash starquestmedia or Twitter at sqpn or join our very active Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. So next time we'll be back and continue discussing season three of The Mandalorian. So we're looking forward to seeing you. Till then, John, thank you for joining us in sharing the secrets of Star Wars. Thank you. Jason, it's always great to have you on. I enjoyed it, guys. Thanks. And Catherine, it's a pleasure as always. Thank you. This was fun. Once again, I have been Robert King. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Star Wars on StarQuest. Here's another show on the StarQuest Network you're sure to enjoy. Let's Science. Find the show wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash science.